Welcome to the City's Arts Podcast, curating conversations on faith, arts, and culture. The City's Arts Podcast is sponsored by the City's Arts Collective. I'm your host, Judith Haugen. This is Season 1, Episode 2. As creatives, we will experience seasons where our creativity seems to derail due to wounds and crises that arise maybe within our art making or just from the tides of life. In this episode, we're delving into important questions for creatives who feel called to make art as part of their work in the world. How do we hold those times when we find ourselves wandering in the wilderness of our own creativity How do we live the wilderness and its aftermath well? I asked a good friend of mine to join me in conversation about creative wilderness. Addie Zierman holds an MFA from Hamlin University and is the author of two books, When We Were on Fire, A Memoir of Consuming Faith, Tangled Love, and Starting Over, which was named one of the top 101 books of 2013 by Publishers Weekly and Night Driving, A Story of Faith in the Dark. Addie and I share pieces of our own journey with creative wilderness and how we're seeking redemptive ways to frame our experiences. Her raw honesty in sharing her story is truly a gift. While this episode was recorded before the national shutdown in the wake of COVID-19, I believe so much of what Addie and I discuss resonates with the times we find ourselves in. Richard Rohr's concept of liminal space and the ideas of embracing mystery and living open-handedly in difficult days are helpful signposts, I think, as all of us travel the pilgrim road toward an unknown future. Here now is my conversation with author Addie Zierman. So welcome, Addie, to the City's Arts Podcast. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your life now, and maybe we'll delve into a little bit of your writerly beginnings. So I am a mom. I live in Scandia, Minnesota, which is like right on the border of Minnesota and Wisconsin. We live in the woods by a river. It's very peaceful. I have two sons, 10 and 8. They're a whirlwind and a delight. I actually just went back to the corporate world after 10 years of being home with them. So I now work at a medical device company as a technical writer. I've written a couple of books and I blogged pretty faithfully for about seven years until I took this job and my life changed a little bit. My husband, uh, Andrew, we've been married Oh gosh, 16 years, I think. And he is a publishing rep for a textbook company. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your beginnings as a writer. I know, I think you've always enjoyed writing. I know you enjoyed it in college and uh, I know you went to Hamlin University's uh, MFA program and, and that was where you really started forming the manuscript that became your first book when we were on fire. Yeah. I have loved writing forever. I'm 
one of those lucky people who has always known what I want to be. And um, I discovered creative nonfiction and memoir in my undergrad. And then I went to grad school to pursue that a little bit more deeply. And I chose Hamlin at the time because their requirement for graduation was to have a full length publishable manuscript. And I, I thought I needed somebody to force me to write a book to know if I could write a book. So I, I started at Hamlin around the time I started having a, like a crisis of spirituality and my memoir, because I'd grown up in the evangelical world and, and very devoted to my faith, ended up being a lot of sorting through and unraveling of that past and that faith and my questions. So I did a lot of work through those classes. And uh, by the end, I had a manuscript that eventually became When We Were on Fire. Right. So it sounds like the writing itself was really important to your own personal spiritual journey. Yeah, it was. Uh, remember asking my advisor at one point, should I be writing about this because it's so raw and I'm in the middle of it and I thought you were supposed to get some distance and she looked at me and said, I, I don't know that it's the same in all situations, but what you're doing right now is clearly what you're supposed to be doing. And so I just kept at it and at a time when I really didn't want to have much to do with God, the writing kept me in dialogue with, with God and with my own spiritual journey and really made a path for me through it. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I remember you came to University of Northwestern to do a reading. I remember how mesmerized the young people were who were at that reading. And I remember one of them just came up to you and her just saying to you, where can I where can I get this book? You know, it hadn't been published yet. Yes. So it seemed like it was really resonating with a lot of younger people. Yeah. It still is amazing to me when kids who are like in college now and in Christian college situations read it and can really relate because the landscape of the evangelical world has changed a bit, but there's something so fundamental about that language and that culture that they can connect in a really deep way, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the impulses within Christian evangelical youth subculture have not necessarily changed dramatically mm -hmm. from the time when you were younger. A lot of the young people connected with that, but also perhaps too around your eventual disillusionment because right. you started out as a really good church girl and uh, went through a very transformative journey around that. Yeah, and I, I talk pretty openly about my depression and my journey with drinking and my trying to reconcile all these different questions and parts of me and feel like people connect with vulnerability. And so I feel like I wrote the book for myself. I wrote the book to get myself through it. And it's just, it feels like a, like a big bonus or a joy that other people are able to also kind of use it as a handhold to get up through the muck that they're in. Right. And to know that they're not alone right. in some of their own thoughts or noticings or misgivings about what they're experiencing within some of their own faith communities. Right. So it feels like a really important manuscript, both for a lot of your readers, but for you personally as well. So talk a little bit about the journey of the manuscript after graduation. So you had a, you know, you had your MFA, you had a rough manuscript of sorts mm -hmm. of the book. So what happened after that? Shortly after I graduated, I had my first son, Dane, and I decided to, I had been working as a technical writer at the time, and I decided to stay home and kind of raise my kids. And I started sending out queries to agents, and I was shocked when I got a response, and I signed on with an agent pretty soon 
into that journey. And she shopped my book around a little bit and then it became clear that I needed to have some sort of social media presence and platform. And so I had to start a blog, which, you know, I'd been sort of, you know, I was in college and then I was in China for a year and then I was in like the Hamlin MFA artsy bubble. I didn't know about blogs. I didn't know you had to promote yourself. I didn't know any of that. That wasn't something we talked about. We talked about the art of it and the craft. So what happened after that was me having to make a decision, you know, how much do I want to pursue this? And I, I really did. So I started a blog and I wrote a lot of entries and I connected with people and I eventually got a little bit of notice and that took about a year and by then my agent had sort of lost interest in my book so I parted ways with her and ended up finding another one. We did some more edits. We did one more round of edits and then she got me a a deal and it was a two book deal which I thought oh my gosh I've arrived. This is amazing and I remember the moment I I heard it and it just sounded beyond belief like it was like a dream coming true and then I got the paperwork and I realized that my next book was due in less than a year and I emailed her some questions about it I thought this seems really fast to have another book done especially a memoir. Right because you had been working on when we were on fire for several years at that point exactly yeah exactly and she said oh that's you know it's somewhat flexible and I had a lot of reservations but also I didn't really know you don't know what you don't know and it seemed like the dream and I signed the contract and what happened after that was such a difficult period in my life because I'm trying to write a book and I'm doing it on a deadline and especially when you're writing memoir and you're determined to be vulnerable it takes a lot of time to get comfortable enough to really share your vulnerability with the world like you have to own it yourself first and I didn't have time to own what I was saying mm-hmm. I didn't really have around the time that I got my uh, that I got to work on my second book both of my writing groups fell apart and I had no one to read my work and so it felt very isolating and when it finally got published it was fine and I I felt okay about it but not great and I felt a lot of anxiety because I don't think I really owned a lot of what I've read, what I had written about at that point and it was my first experience of extreme anxiety where I woke up and then I just feeling like I couldn't breathe had to go on some major new medications to get through it and it was sort of the beginning of my wilderness journey with my writing life right Mm -hmm. because it kind of was so great I mean you had you you said it was the dream and it is the dream that any artist would want like the big opportunity that someone has put before you the thing you've dreamed about and wished for and worked toward and then there it is Mm -hmm. you know it's right in front of you and it reminds me of a famous quote by Oscar Wilde. He said, there are two great tragedies in life. The first is to never receive your heart's desire. The second one is to receive your heart's desire because it seems as if the thing that we wanted so badly is so bright and shiny, but when it's not just an idea, but is actually something you're walking through, you start to see a lot of the cracks and it's just not everything that you hoped it would be because it kind of couldn't be in a sense. So your second book was a really difficult journey for you. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is that I'm aware that you've been in this, what I would term, and you know, this wilderness of your own creativity, and that it was a really difficult experience you had with the second book. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you were in the wake of working on that book and completing it and kind of what that was like for you? You've, you've started a little bit, but if you could say a little more. I, 
I just I felt really alone in the process of writing it and I felt even in the editing I knew there were things wrong with it but I couldn't on my own pinpoint them and to have nobody really there to help me do that felt really hard my my editor at the time was going through a really big personal upheaval and there just it just felt like there was no one and and so then I put it out and the response was lukewarm I know it impacted some people and that's great and some people loved it and that's great but I felt so insecure about it that it was like no amount of affirmation could convince me that it was a good book I just was almost sick over it just because I knew it could have been better and I I didn't know how to get it there and I felt like I had no time and so I think I lost some trust in myself and I didn't really know how to process it I I guess I always assumed that I'd write a book and then I'd write a better book and then I'd write a better book like it was an uphill thing and that's not that was not my experience I didn't really know what to do and around that same time I think maybe that next fall, both of my kids were in school full time. You know, when I was writing my books while my kids were little, I was primarily home with them. And then I was sort of writing on the side. But now it felt like there was all this added pressure, like you're home all day, you should be able to kick out some content, you should be able to make some money doing this, you should be able to get another book idea going. And, and it was like, the more pressure I put on myself, the more I couldn't do it. And I felt frozen. I wrote some blog posts, but the energy that had been there before felt like it wasn't there for me. And then not long after that, we had a really hard thing happen with a church that we had attended for a long time and had felt really connected to and safe at. And we were essentially asked to leave. One of the reasons was my writing and and the ways I was vulnerable about my struggles, especially alcohol. There were a couple of things said during that whole process. One was that the pastor told some people that I never should have been allowed to lead. Mm. And another was that there was a meeting about why we were no longer at the church. And during that meeting, he read excerpts from my work as proof that I should never have been able to lead. Paired with the trust I'd already lost in myself mm-hmm. from the book, I just felt annihilated. And I, right. I could not move forward. And I still am struggling to know how to move forward as a person who has written pretty exclusively in faith nonfiction space. Right. Yeah. Wow. You just had kind of a perfect storm, it sounds like, of a lot of things in your writing life, having your kids in school, which is a big transition, and uh, and then with the church. Right. So all of that seemed to conspire to leave you in the middle of your own wilderness, so yeah. to speak. It sounds like you're still working through that. Yeah, I am the wilderness experience, I think we all have them. It's helpful for us who are creatives and artists to recognize them when they are right smack in the middle of our creativity, affecting our creativity. I think of wilderness as, you know, it's a place of deprivation, Mm -hmm. a place of hunger, thirst. Sometimes it's a place of wrestling, but mostly it's a place of waiting and a place of unknowing. Most of us have a lot of trouble with those two things of having to wait and not knowing how it's going to turn out or what's going to open up next. And yet I also think that can be a really fertile place as well. So I really resonate with your story in terms of being in that place of wilderness. I went through a period some years ago, my mom was diagnosed with cancer in 2012, and she died in the spring of uh, 2014. And in the middle of that, I was trying to still write and do things, trying to see if there was any interest in the manuscript I was putting together at the time, in which I'm still putting together. And a friend who's in publishing linked me up with another friend who had been in publishing, but was then wanting to possibly become an agent. And I was looking for an agent. 
I was a little dubious because I wasn't sure that having an agent would have been that helpful for me because it was kind of more of a literary work. I didn't know if it would make very much money. So I wasn't surprised when the first few people all passed. I thought that was okay. But this one guy seemed really interested. I hadn't met him. He lived in another state. And so we kind of had little bits of contact. We kept kind of building towards having a uh, voice-to-voice meeting on the phone. And when we finally got on the phone, and I had really high hopes, this guy had seemed like he really was interested in my manuscript. It turned out that within a minute and a half of the phone call, it was really clear that he was wanting to sell me services, which Mm -hmm. my friend told me later was like borderline unethical. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to him and he's like, well, you know, what can we do for you? How can I help you? And I'm like, I'm looking for an agent. He was cagily trying to sell me thousands of dollars worth of services from this consulting group. I was already kind of an emotional mess because of what my mom was going through. I was also going through some things at my church, not nearly devastating degree of what you were going through, but just knowing that my time there felt like it was coming to a close after many years. So I was already in a big transition and I'm like crying on the phone. He doesn't know that, but I am. Mm -hmm. And it was really damaging for me. I just felt so deflated. It has affected me. I just stopped looking for an agent at that point. I thought it's not going to happen. The question I always have when I think about my own writing is that sometimes I'll just say, who's listening? Mm -hmm. Is anyone listening? And the answer I felt was coming to me at that time was no. Mm -hmm. And I know our stories are not isolated or completely unique, which is why I thought it would be a good thing to talk about what happens when we find ourselves wandering in the wilderness of our own creativity. What happens in that time? How do we move through it? What do we notice when we are there? And to talk about that a little bit, because I don't hear people talking about that. When I was in that place, and I still feel like I'm coming out of it, I my writing life has really been kind of fits and starts the last few years. And I feel like I'm coming into a time now where I think it's better. But I think we often see these wilderness times, whether they're caused by, you know, someone within our creative circle, such as a publisher or someone who thinks he wants to be your agent, (laughs) or whether it's just life stuff, like my mom is sick, or, you know, you lose your job, or you're, you know, now you're home alone during the day, and you're not sure what to do. And you're, you had a real fallout with with your church community. I think it's really easy to just see those times as an aberration, and to think this isn't part of the plan. We have this idea of how our lives are going to go. And this just must be an unfortunate detour. And it's a place we want to escape from as quickly as possible. For some of us, it was for me, it's a place of shame where it's like, I have an MFA. I'm a writing teacher. That's what I do for a living. And I'm having trouble writing. It can also be a place, I think, where our identity is challenged. Mm -hmm. Do we over-identify with our productivity as creatives in order to have a sense of self? So then what happens when it feels like that's taken away? So as you reflect on that time, both in the past and also now, how are you moving through it and what are you noticing as you do? Yeah, well, I resonate with all of that. And, you know, your question is, is anyone listening? I think maybe mine is... Am I worth listening to? Do I have anything good to say? Am I original? Am I trustworthy? And that identity piece was really enormous, especially when I took the step this year to kind of shut it all down and go back to work in the corporate world. It felt like a, a really big kind of giving up. Like, well, I tried to have the dream and I couldn't hack it. 
and now I'm back to square one where I started and it felt very debilitating. So I don't know. In in many ways, I feel like I'm still trying to figure out how to move through it. Judy, you and I are both Enneagram 4s. We are indeed. So I've been really learning a lot about the Enneagram lately, which has been so helpful for me. And one of the things I learned recently was that every Enneagram type has a center that they tend to repress. So there's the three centers, the heart center, which is feeling, the head center, thinking, and the gut, doing. And fours tend to be doing repressed. So we're really good at feelings. But I think what has happened to me in this wilderness time And I also have clinical depression, so that exacerbates things for me. But during the wilderness time, it's very easy for me to just sit down and just stay there. Like, I guess this is it for me. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is this is all there is. I guess right. I'm done. This and is your lot. Yes. Yes. But I'm beginning to realize that that is getting stuck in a feeling. And in order to be a balanced person, I need to figure out ways to think about this that are helpful. And I need to find ways to do things, not necessarily with productivity in mind, but in response to the calling I still feel like I have on my life. And that feels really hard. And as somebody who really wants to be authentic and wants to write from a real place to write when I don't feel confident or like I have anything worth saying feels extremely hard. Mm -hmm. And so trying to find ways to allow myself to do that and to enter back into those spaces, it's it's a difficult dance for me. I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, you had said before that you feel like you just kind of ended up back at square one, more or less. I just, I just feel like we always keep coming back to the same place over and over. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're not the same. And I think for anyone who's experiencing any kind of disruption or desert in his or her creative life, you can hold on to that, that we do come back to the same place over and over. You know, I don't think the spiritual journey is completely linear, where it's just this one big, long, straight line. I think we keep coming back to places, but we're different when we come back to them. Right. And, and you are different than when you were first in those places. Yes. Even if it doesn't necessarily feel that way. So as you reflect on this period of time when you've been in your own creative wilderness, what feels important to you about that place or what kind of knowing or insights have emerged for you? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of thinking and uh, reimagining around what is success for me. And because I had to be in that blogging space in order to get the publishing deal, there's just a lot of stuff when you're in the social media blogging space about, you know, there's a lot of pressure to monetize and to, if you just do this, then you'll get this many followers. And if you just do this, and if you do this other thing, and there are endless different technologies coming out that you should be using. And I think I had to really kind of begin to separate that from the work itself. And, you know, if I'd never published another book, is it still worth it for me to write? Is it still a calling? And I think it is, but kind of learning to let go of what I thought it was going to be or what I wanted it to be or what I hoped it would be. You know, you mentioned shame and kind of letting go of some of the shame around it. Mm-hmm. I think to to get your dream of publishing books and then not have them sell widely is very humbling and hard. So kind of making space for that in my heart and I think practicing some self-forgiveness for going through with that deal and not listening to my hesitations, that's been a big part of it. I don't know. <laughs> what else? <laughs> I think I'm still kind of figuring out the lessons of the wilderness. Right. 
One of the reasons why I thought this would be a good topic, other than the fact that I think all creatives, if they stay in their artistic genre long enough, will experience something like this, is that I wonder if there are some ways in which we can think differently about that wilderness space. I'm a fan of Richard Rohr, as I think you are a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his phrase, which is the title of one of his books, Everything Belongs. Yeah. The whole idea of wilderness is a very spiritual one. In the Bible, it's important terrain. So if everything belongs, I think it's helpful to think about how does wilderness belong. And one of the ideas I've been playing with that I wanted to see what your thoughts were. So Richard Rohr talks a lot about liminal space. And liminal space is really threshold space, in between space. The word liminal is Latin for threshold. And I'm going to read a quote from Richard Rohr and just see what you think about it. He writes, We have to allow ourselves to be drawn into sacred space, into liminality. All transformation takes place here. We have to allow ourselves to be drawn out of business as usual and remain patiently on the threshold where we are betwixt and between the familiar and the completely unknown. There alone is our old world left behind, while we are not yet sure of the new existence. It's the realm where God can best get at us, because our false certitudes are finally out of the way. This is the sacred space where the old world is able to fall apart, and a bigger world is revealed. I think there is something of liminality in these creative wildernesses that we find ourselves in that there is a waiting and there is an unknowing, but there's something bigger going on that will reveal itself to us if we are willing to look for it and not just see it as an inconvenience, as an aberration, as something that should not be happening. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a beautiful quote. I was just thinking about how when I got my publishing deal and I was publishing my first book and my blog was being successful and we had just found this church that we really loved and I felt like I was healing from some of my old church wounds and I was finding courage to lead again in small and big ways. I remember the first time I prayed in front of people again for the first time and how transformative that felt and I thought, well, this is what it was all going to be, right? I was going to write my way through the angst and then I was going to find a way to go back to what I was, but healthier. And then it just crumbled. All of it, the writing, the church, all those pieces. And so in this liminal space now, I thought I knew what God was trying to teach me and what I was meant to take out of all this. And it wasn't that. And so I think there's ways to be healthy in the wilderness and unhealthy in the wilderness. And I spent a lot of my time here kind of crouched into a ball and maybe it was necessary. But I think as I get more curious about the wilderness, I'm able to start asking some questions that are not so rooted in fear. What is next for me? What is next for our journey with church or with community? What role is my writing going to have? And and being really open-handed with it in a way that I wasn't before, although I thought I was, but probably wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just hearing you speak about the life that you were living and thought you would continue to live, it really was your plan. Yeah. Your plan was working. And something in me said, as you were saying that just now, isn't it really great to have all your plans sort of crumble? Yeah. And I don't mean that in a mean way, obviously, but sometimes those plans are all about us, maybe a little bit around our ego. It's the way things should be. Yeah the world according to Addie Zierman yes. or the world according to Judy Haugen. 
instead of this other thing. Right. So when you're in that space where the the life you had crafted was starting to fall apart and you're kind of walking around and it's rubble and now you're kind of continuing on, what do you think you gain? Humility, I heard that. Yeah. Do you think you gain more of an openness to God and the universe and what else might be out there for you rather than more inwardly just looking at, well, what's my plan now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in the early parts of my wilderness, I kept trying to cobble back together a plan. Well, I can do this. I'll do it this way. Here's my goals. Here's my bullet journal. Here's my <laughs> here's my habit tracker. I'll get it done. Mm-hmm. I'll figure it out. And um, I actually, I started a practice of of the first of the year going through my journals from the last year and it was all these like just attempts at getting control and figuring out how to be something great again they all just fizzled out and praise god right a little bit yeah i think so i think so and so i think there was some grieving that had to happen over the things that i had wanted or thought i needed mm-hmm. and then there's been some really surprising good things that have come and i do think there is a, a new openness i mean there's there's so much more that i don't know about but you know i do feel sure about god's love and i don't know what that's going to look like for me in the future but i feel a lot more open-handed with my life than i did before mm-hmm. i was just reminded of one of the things i've heard richard Rohr say also about liminality when you're in it it is this place of waiting and this place of unknowing. It's like you're in the cloud of unknowing. Father War said that God needs to get us into that kind of space because if God just unfurled the whole plan God has for us to walk in, he said we would either, number one, try to engineer it ourselves, Hmm. or number two, we would run away. (laughs) Basically run away screaming. (laughs) And uh, he didn't say screaming. I said that. Yeah. He's really on to something there. We hate not knowing. We do. The idea of unknowing is also a place of our undoing Yeah, because we are so used to craftily trying to control things without saying we're trying to control things. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really good to have hopes and dreams of what it is that we would love to have happen. And sometimes we get pieces of it. And sometimes they stay and sometimes they go away. But how much better to live more open-handedly, to take what comes, to try to live the message of the phrase, everything belongs. It's a harder way, but it's also a better way. And I can't help but think that it's going to make both of us more mature, more resilient, and I think deeper as creative people as well. I think so. Mm Mm-hmm. So Addie, this has been a really deep, rich conversation. So I thank you for your vulnerability with me and with the people listening. I still have one last question I think would be fruitful to explore is what should artists do and creatives who find themselves in those wilderness spaces in terms of their creativity? What kind of soul care might be helpful for them? In your own journey, What has been helpful for you as you've been wrestling with rediscovering your own creative life? Pretty early on, I started seeing a spiritual director, and that was really transformative for me. Being able to talk about the things I was experiencing, and you know, as all that happened, I was also feeling pretty far away from God, and so to have someone else sort of help me listen for what God was saying and doing when I couldn't figure it out or make it out. And coming from a time of feeling so isolated felt really helpful to me. And she actually introduced me to a freight. Instead of calling it self-care, my spiritual director called it resourcing. And 
it was such a helpful pivot for me because self-care to me always sounded so fluffy and like superfluous, mm-hmm. like a spa day or something like <laughs> something like that, right, you know, yeah. a bubble bath. Like, mm-hmm. But she talked about it as just giving yourself what you need to get through the day. And she talked about how, you know, I had little kids at the time and well, you wouldn't you wouldn't take them out for a long day without snacks and diapers and the things that they need to make it through successfully and how are you giving yourself the things that you need to make it through successfully which is a different thing than just like treat yourself you know what I mean Mm -hmm, it's different than buying yourself things you don't need or I mean sometimes it's something as simple as a nap or reading a poem or making time for quiet taking a walk stuff like that and so as I made that pivot and started thinking about really practical ways that I could make space for myself, that was really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I would add in my own journey, and I kind of heard you saying it, like you just kind of let yourself be. Yeah. And one of the things I think is hard for us as human beings, especially Western human beings, perhaps also those raised in the the Protestant work ethic, Mm -hmm. is that being is really hard for us. And we often don't know that we're overattached to doing until the doing doesn't work anymore or is faltering in some way. You know, I'm a writer, and that's part of who I am. It's a role. It's maybe part of my identity. So if, I, if I'm not producing as a writer, then who am I? Right. I think it's a very gracious question for our lives to ask us. Mm-hmm. And certainly a difficult one and maybe painful, but a good one nonetheless, because in the desert, you have to learn how to be. Yes. You have to value being as much as you value doing. We're just not taught to do that. My value is not in what I produce. Easy to say, a lot harder to actually live that out. But I think that is part of the message of the desert is that you are not the sum of your actions and what you're able to do for others or produce or, you know, how many people read your books, you know, uh, how many books you have, et cetera. And alongside that, we have to understand whether we're embracing mastery or we're embracing mystery. And those are two ideas that I gleaned from a book by Gerald May some years ago called Will and Spirit. He talked about them in terms of orientations to living. Mastery, of course, is where we want to figure it out, do the plan, and create this thing of our lives. It's very tight and constricted. On the other hand, we could embrace mystery, which is going through life in an open-handed way, knowing that we don't know, and being okay with the fact that mystery exists. All of us as creatives can get caught up in productivity, in that mastery. Like, you know, you have a contract deadline that you have to have it done by, or, you know, this person needs this artwork done by such and such and get caught up in the business of it. And then we get mad at ourselves and we have trouble producing. But man, we have got to learn how to embrace that place of mystery. And I think we do when we're maybe younger creatives. And as we grow old, And there's like demands on our creativity sometimes, or maybe we've had a little success and it's like, I got to keep it going. It becomes hard to stay in that place of mystery, that open-handed place where we know that we don't know. We know that most of what comes to us and really all of it is a gift. It's gift. We know we can't control it and we don't really have a big desire to try. Mm -hmm. 
we have to remember that as artists, we are handling mysteries in what we're doing. We don't even know exactly how it works or why, how it comes out or where it comes from. We are not standing on an assembly line, tightening bolts on widgets, right? Nothing wrong with tightening bolts on widgets, but that is not what we are doing when we sit down to create. We're bringing pieces of our lives and putting them into this self-sustaining, externalized thing, whether it's a painting or a piece of music or a piece of writing. I think that there's a lot of encouragement to learn how to be in the desert and to learn how to embrace mystery, maybe again or maybe for the first time. Yeah, and I would just add, just with what I've been learning about my Enneagram number and my stance, which is so focused on feeling and that I'm doing repressed, I'm wondering about, is there a way that I can separate doing or action itself from the need to produce? What ways is God inviting me to be active even in this space? Not to get anything done, not to get anywhere necessarily, but to just participate. I mean, do you think that can be part of the being? Because I think sometimes the being is good and sometimes the being is really a lot of self-pity and a lot of Mm -hmm. kind of wallowing in my own disappointment. So how do we embrace like a healthy creative goodness as part of that being? Wow, that is an excellent question. I think the way I would kind of get my hands around your question is I do think that there probably could be some unhealthy ways of being where it might be a practice passivity that is not helpful or some negative self-talk. Right. Like for me, a healthy being is really founded, I think, often in spiritual practice. Yeah. Whether it's just sitting in quiet with God with a cup of coffee in the morning or taking a walk with no agenda for anything that has to happen. Mm-hmm. Beingfulness, by definition, is productless and with little or no agenda. Mm-hmm. Where you just are in the moment. The best beingfulness comes with awareness, aware of yourself, but also aware of what surrounds you and noticing the beauty that is right in front of us in the moment. But for me, the best doing comes out of being. Yeah from a strong, healthy foundation of beingfulness so that I'm not going after my doing because I don't have a sense of self. Like I don't know who I am if I'm not producing. It's about learning that who I am is not what I do. Mm -hmm. And we have to be still to, to know that. We cannot figure that out in the middle of racing into the next project that we think is gonna be this grand, glorious thing. Right. The word that came to me when you were talking was showing up. I think that idea of just showing up like, okay, I'm here. I know I can't make anything happen, Mm -hmm. but I am here and I'm open handed. And maybe for me, it's showing up to the page just to journal a page. Or maybe it's like you said, going for a walk with no agenda. I think you can have no agenda, but also have some intentionality. Like, Absolutely. That's a great distinction. Well, this has been, again, a really rich, thoughtful conversation. I thank you for opening up your story in such vulnerable ways in this time that we've had together. Well, thanks for having the conversation. Yeah. You're right. It's the thing we don't talk about is our wilderness. It's Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Of course. Music for this episode was written and performed by the fabulous Jenny Klukin, a Twin Cities musician and visual artist. The City's Arts Podcast is new to the podcasting world, so if you appreciate our content, consider subscribing to future episodes or leaving a review. 
If you'd like more information on the Cities Arts Collective, go to citiesartscollective.org. And last, if you'd like a little Addie Zierman bonus content, hang on. I asked her to close us out by reading an excerpt from her book, When We Were on Fire. It seemed a fitting way to end by listening to her beautiful and thoughtful words. Thanks again for joining us, friends. So, Addie, I just want you to know that I really appreciate your writing. Thank you. And would love for you to read a little bit from When We Were on Fire. So, take it away. Yeah, sure. I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning of the book. This is about, uh, this is during a missions trip I went on when I was 14 with Teen Mania Ministries. Here is how you become a mime. You flub your audition at Teen Mania headquarters in Garden Valley, Texas. On the day you arrive, you are herded onto a tennis court with a group of people you do not yet know, and you are told to mimic the choreographed movements of the blonde woman up front. The music starts loudly, unexpectedly, blaring over the speakers at the edge of the tennis courts, and you are terrible at dancing. You have always known this about yourself, and you know it all the more as you crash into the tall Texan on your right while trying to imitate something that looks like a grapevine. Your arms smack haphazardly into the dancers on either side of you who try to ignore your erratic movements. You see your team leader look at you and make a broad stroke on his clipboard, and you know. Or maybe you become a mime before that. Maybe it starts in the great convention hall back in November when you attend Teen Mania Acquire the Fire Conference. You do not know the true meaning of mania, then. Excessive, unreasonable enthusiasm, a word commonly associated with bipolar disorder. You know only that your heart is beating loud and that Chris is sitting beside you, his pen suspended over his official conference program. The director of Teen Mania is pacing the stage, talking about the countercultural revolution that began in the 60s, a revolt against conservative, godly values. His face is magnified on the screen above, his dark hair gelled so that it crests at his forehead. He speaks in italics, in the measured voice of practiced brokenness. If you want to be part of a new movement, come forward now, he says. If you want to go overseas this summer, the summer of 1998, and spread the gospel to a generation in great turmoil, don't stay in your seat. Don't look at the person next to you. Just come. But you do look at the person next to you because the person next to you is Chris, and you are completely in love with him. In the corner of your eye, you see the great room shifting, hundreds of teenagers streaming down stairwells, down concrete steps to the crowded floor below. Chris stands. You stand. You move forward as if you are attached to him by an invisible thread. And when you look at him, and when you look at the director on the stage, you are in awe. You are convinced that their eyes are filled with the light of God. It does not occur to you that the light you think you see is crazed, unrestrained obsession, wild as wind. You are 14. You have not learned to weigh words for truth or let logic penetrate emotion. You know only the warmth of Chris's body next to your own the mix of Aspen cologne with the fervent, sweaty words of the speaker. You want mania. Even if you could understand its definition, its sinister undertones, you might still want it. When you are 14, truth matters less than the sound of your own heart pumping in your ears, the excitement of being swept up into something greater than yourself. Very beautiful and insightful. Thanks, Addie. Mm. The end. <laughs>